1: the podcast that rose through the river of films from the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leder, and I've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm on the outside, looking in. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. Here we are once again, Jake talking about Studio Ghibli and the Ghibliotech.
0: Yeah, you came in with quite a a sombre welcome there, which is perhaps appropriate for this film.
1: (laughs) Yes, this week we're talking about When Marnie Was There, the second feature directed for Ghibli by Hiramatsu Yonobayashi, and possibly the most emo
0: film in the Ghibli canon, would you say? Yeah,
1: I think so. I mean, you've got those...
0: uh, Those kind of like scene emo characters like Hal. Mm. But I think this is maybe the most textured emo that we've had so far.
1: It's also, we must say, the most recent Ghibli film released. It was, at the time, many people thought the final Stuart Ghibli film that they would produce and release.
0: Yes, we have our our chronology that we do in our own strange way. And uh, so it is... naturally that we've got to the second episode of our third series where we will do the final film <laughs> and we still have another 10 to go or whatever exactly but we've got our reasons and there's a reason that we're watching when mining was there
1: exactly bear with us put your faith in us we'll take your hand and lead you through the ghibliotech of course we'll be discussing a synopsis the production history. And your first take review, yeah. there will be spoilers. And this is a film, I would say, that can be spoiled. There are twists and turns in this film that, if you want to watch it fresh, I'd recommend you go away and watch the film first. The f- podcast will be here when you come back, because otherwise, we we'll be, will be blowing this lot one to wide go open. Into. Yeah. <laughs> so, should we crack on, Jake? Yeah. This is when Marnie was there. A shy teenager called Anna has an anxiety attack at school and spends a summer in the marshy wetlands of rural Hokkaido to recuperate, staying with relatives of her foster mother. There, in an abandoned mansion that sits perched on the edge of a lake, she finds a blonde-haired girl called Marnie, and the two develop an intimate friendship that transcends time and, over the long summer days, helps to bring Anna out of her shell. But who is this beautiful, mysterious girl from the past, and just what is her relationship to Anna?
0: Okay, Michael. We will uh, perhaps delve a bit further into it in our review section, but there is there's a lot going on on this film, mm-hmm. and it is really interesting that currently, as you say, this is the last Studio Ghibli film, and I 'm craving some knowledge as to how we ended up with it.
1: well let 's pick up with Hirimayo Beyashi, where we left him last, which was when Arietti was made and released. It was a hit. We talked about it very much as a Miyazaki cover version, but it did very well at the box office. It? I, it was huge in America as well. I think it's to date still the the highest grossing Ghibli film at the American box office. Miyazaki liked it as well. We talk about Miyazaki hazing here mm. in Masuonobayashi a lot in the making of Arietti, but he then said when he saw the final film, it was good. I cried. So if you can make Miyazaki cry, um, I think you can do anything. But then as soon as Miyazaki, uh, as soon as Arietti comes out the studio got stuck into this double bill, The Wind Rises and A Tale of the Princess Kaguya. Homiyazaki Miyazaki and Isao Takahata making two massive films that at the time would stand as their final statements.
0: Yeah, and those feel like it's the end of the road for those two directors who we think of as a reflection of the studio. Exactly. So it's just so weird that you have these bookends and then this strange little post-it note stuck on the end of the
1: shelf. Exactly. So while those films are being made here Yonobi actually goes up to Toshio Suzuki and says I really want to direct another feature um, is there anything I can do and Suzuki gives him this novel when Marnie was there by Joan G. Robinson which is a sort of mid 20th century English kids book that was not, it did not become part of the young adult canon over here. It wasn't in print. It wasn't even in print when the film came out, exactly, but it's one of those strange uh, Western European stories that is popular in Japan. But it's another example of Toshio Suzuki almost being the Alex Ferguson of Studio Ghibli, being like, I'll pair you up with just the right situation here to create something magical. Suzuki says that there are a couple of reasons why he thought that Hiramatsu Yonobayashi was perfect for the project, one being that the film was about two young girls. And he says, just as Miyazaki enjoyed drawing fighter planes as a kid, Hiramatsu Yonobayashi probably had a steadfast liking for drawing girls. I think that sounds a bit creepy, maybe out of context, but uh, he also says that Miyazaki couldn't make a film like Marnie. Um, Yonobayashi was clearly more of a sensitive soul than Miyazaki, and he was younger. Suzuki says, I, I instinctively felt that this film would have an appeal that differed from Miyazaki's fantasy films. So he hands over the reins of producers. So Suzuki is very busy at this time and getting on a bit. So he ha- hands over the reins of producer to this younger chap called Yoshiaki Nishimura, who had produced The Tale of Princess Kaguya. So this is a new generation. So we haven't got any of the key three. It's the first film in the Ghibli canon that has, yeah, exactly, none of the three key, key Creative partners. Um, Suzuki is involved in a general manager type credit, but it's the first film without Miyazaki and Takahata involved at all. Yonobayashi at the time said he has to make this film without the help from the giant. Really exciting, really, and, and yeah. unique in the canon. And then Yonobayashi has a few ideas. Not only is this a brand new beginning, a brand new start behind the camera, but he wants this to look different these visual ideas he brings to the table. He wanted more detail in the characters' expressions, particularly their eyes, building on from Marietti, because this is such an emotional film that expressions were key and held such importance in the narrative. But also he wanted this to be set in a different, completely new area. They went and did scouting trips up up in Hokkaido in northern Japan, specifically these marshy wetland areas, locations that hadn't been represented on screen by Ghibli before. And he wanted to get away from, and this is something I know you love in previous films, the trademark green rolling hills, blue skies, these bright primary colors that are so associated with Ghibli. He wanted overlapping hues, occluded skylines that could represent the tumultuous emotional textures of the film and he wanted to what he described to capture a a pearl-coloured
0: sky. Yeah, I mean, I love those colours. And uh, so going into this, knowing that this man was going to mess up my lovely blue skies, I obviously had some concerns.
1: This could be the first occasion of nerd rage for you on the podcast, maybe. This is not my Ghibli, they've ruined my childhood. Yes, yes, release the Miyazaki cut. (laughs) Exactly. Marnie is released in July 2014, just eight months after The Tale of Princess Kaguya, which was delayed from its summer release uh, the year previous. And it only grosses just over a third of what Arietti took in 2010. So it's seen as something of a disappointment. And actually, at the end of the year, it only just cracks the top ten of the highest grossing Japanese films of the year. So really, we, we talk about this every week, don't we, every episode... The Ghibli films are up there Mm. domestically for Japanese language films. This one is actually underperforming. And internationally, it's pretty well-reviewed, well-received, gets that rollout that most of the Ghibli films do at this point. It's nominated for an Oscar in 2015, but it loses to Inside Out. And there's generally this feeling in many of the reviews that it's this sputtering of the engines, to use a fighter plane metaphor. It
0: feels like it suffers from... You're coming from this mad double bill. Like mm-hmm. these huge closing statements. We'll get,
1: we'll get to them. They're both over two hours long. They're both doing something that neither of the filmmakers have done before. This is Wind Rises and Princess Kaguya. And they both feel like mic drop moments. So a bit weird that the sort of nerdy guy in the corner, Yonabe know, actually comes and picks up that microphone and goes, can I tell my weird little story about two girls now, please? So it really feels like, what is this film? It doesn't, it's not helped by the fact that... Um, so is this like Ringo doing Yellow Submarine? the best Beatles song (laughs) (laughs) don't you put where and go down this is for this is for our Beatle Attack uh, spin off podcast of course (laughs) but it's not helped at all that I think less than a month after Marnie's released in Japan Toshio Suzuki makes a statement saying that that Ghibli's going to go on an indefinite hiatus he calls it a little pause but everyone's like yeah sure that's the end of Studio Ghibli then while Marnie is still in cinemas um, almost like cutting it off at the legs before it's even had a chance to, to develop its own speed. Um, and as we said, this is the final fully produced Ghibli film to date. But that doesn't stop Yonobi Ashi, Don't worry about him. About a year after this film is released, it's announced that Yoshiaki Nishimura, the, that young producer I mentioned, was going to form his own studio called Studio Ponoc, And he poached... Yonabe Ashi and a bunch of Ghibli animators that suddenly found themselves out of work to go and make films in the Ghibli vein, keeping that legacy going. And they very quickly turned around this film, Mary and the Witch's Flower, which is not a Ghibli film, but has so much Ghibli DNA in it that maybe one day we'll have to cover it. I'm sure that'll end up in our episode library one day. But let's stick with When Marnie Was There. This is a controversial, strange, unique film in the Ghibli canon. I can't wait to hear what you made of it, Jake. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Jake, we've teed this up as being so different to uh, every film we've covered so far almost, um, even from the very beginning, right?
0: Yeah, we often talk about these opening scenes, how they set us up for the film we're about to watch. And this begins with really an anxiety attack, Yeah, which is a huge surprise. And it becomes, we've already spoken about the pressure that was on Yonobayashi, about how he has to view himself underneath the giants of the directors before him. And this anxiety attack that Anna experiences comes after she presents artwork to someone, and that artwork is dismissed.
1: Mm-hmm. It's almost a little bit more complicated than that, though. It's not dismissed. It's, so she's in the playground, and the teacher comes over and says, what are you doing? What are you drawing in the corner there? And she she's sh- goes to show him, but he's called away by something else in the playground. And it's just that sense of opening herself up mm. to the vulnerability of exposing her art to somebody else, and then that not being met by interest. Mm. That is such already in the first scene of the film such a complicated emotional sequence to play character moment and we're already off the reservation here aren't we yeah
0: yeah and she's a really interesting character you feel for her straight away because it's it's a film that doesn't deal in binaries of good and evil uh even though Miyazaki doesn't really have antagonists it's very often quite clear who is good and who is bad mm-hmm. um and here we've got the, the, the cl- in the opening, we have the clique of girls who go and uh, check up on Anna. And they're not like a mean girls fraternity type club. They they actually sincerely want to go and talk to her and help her. And they're not really presented as being friends. They're just concerned classmates. Mm-hmm. And Anna doesn't really want that. She doesn't quite know how to process that engagement She's really unsure of how to deal with herself in society. She feels so disconnected. Mm -hmm. And compare Anna to Kiki, who we spoke about in our previous episode, at the start of that adventure, everything clicks into place. I'm 13, I'm a witch, i got to go and do my thing. And she's off and she's out the door. In comparison, the reason that Anna leaves the city out to the country, something that we've seen before in other Ghibli films, is not because
1: of this sense of direction, it's a sense of confusion. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I interviewed Dionne when this film played at the London Film Festival a few years ago, and I asked him about that protagonist. And he compared her to Ariety. He said, Ariety is an adventurous young girl who wants to go out and engage with these giants of human beings that are living in the same house as her. Whereas Marnie, he wanted to explore a character who was locked off, closed off, and shy and anxious. Almost a... A, an undramatic character, you know, protagonist to have. Mm. And it's, over the course of this film, seeing her open up as she goes to Hokkaido. I, I, you see familiar landscapes. We love a good train journey in a Ghibli film. Yep. We have that here. But then you see these landscapes of Hokkaido, the marshlands, the occluded skies. What was that like for you, Jake?
0: Well, it's really interesting because you're in this uncanny territory of being able to recognize images but also they're unfamiliar at the same time. Because, as you say, we've seen these trains. We've seen rolling hills. We've seen skies. We've seen food that, in this film as well that feels like there is that Ghibli DNA, but it has been distorted in quite an interesting way. I really love... This might come as a surprise to you. I love these overcast skies. I think they set in the background of so much of the film, this murk, this fog that resides within Anna. Mm-hmm. And it really sets you up of giving this emotional texture to the entire world around her, rather than just being a place to for animators to build wild creatures and beautiful landscapes and express what they want and put those behind the characters it's this constant
1: interlinking between the shape of the world and Anna's mind, and it's an ambition with a goal, isn't it? Miyaabashi also talked about wanting that that uh, alluring magical mansion on the on the lakeside to be uh, look like a magical place. It's almost designed in a photorealistic way. Mm. Um, at the time in the Ghibli Museum, they had an exhibition of the actual scale model they made of that building almost to architectural standards so they could light it from all these different angles so it could, so they could then represent that as ultra-photorealistically as possible yeah. on screen. It's an infinitely screenshotable film. Well, in fact, I actually have one of those landscapes as, as my laptop screen at home mm. when I can see it behind all those icons that I let... Clutter up my screen. All those other Jibby screen shots. <laughs> uh,
0: and, and he refers to them as pearl skies. Mm-hmm. And you do get that. As much as I love that blank blue, which is wonderful, the way that these skies just kind of drift into the background, constantly changing between these... Like the, there are these blue and purple
1: dusks that are absolutely stunning. Mm-hmm. You talk about the occluded skies and how that represents the torment and tumult in the heart of our character and the, the changes she's going through, the things she's wrestling with. Often in these discussions, we like to dance on top of the film and talk about our highlights and things that that, that strike us. We can't do that with this well, film. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think perhaps that's the end of our stylistic review. Uh, we got to delve into this story, I think, because it, it turns into something quite spectacular in the last... 10 minutes.
1: We talk about ambition and this film on a story, thematic, character level is also so ambitious. Ghibli films, Miyazaki films in particular, have these clean character arcs, clean character lines of the struggle of, of identity, place in the world, good hard labor, finding your passion, committing to it. Maybe it's a, it's a daily struggle, but at least you have that path. This film... Throws into the pot so many hot button topics that yes. um, I think we let's just at least go through the roll call to begin with. So it's there in the trailer that this film suggests that Marnie and Anna may have a romantic relationship, or at least the suggestion of that.
0: I mean, and that there is perhaps some lines of dialogue that may suggest that as well, such as, You're my precious secret, the girl from my
1: dreams. <laughs> Ex- I've never loved another girl more than you or whatever the other one was. Yeah. Uh that f- it, f- first of all is, is is groundbreaking for Ghibli. We have as we said anxiety attacks, mental health issues. We we talk Miyazaki and Kiki's Delivery Service and other films talks about when you feel down or blue, but we don't have them having an actual panic attack. We have foster families. Anna has her foster family. She falls out with her foster mother because she finds the social security maintenance check and that opens up almost a I think quite complicated political question of are foster families real families? Um, are they given special treatment because they're being paid by the state to look after these kids? Why are other families not given money by the state?
0: That sounds like something that would form the key plot in a
1: Cori film. Hirokawa's a creative film, exactly. That's almost like a social drama. We then also have uh, references to child abuse. Uh, Marnie talking about how this housekeeper, uh, childminder figure that she has will beat her. Yeah, Um, And it's interesting that all of these moments, they're all
0: set up under this guise of a summer, sunny romance. And the first time that you view these incidents, you almost don't fully... Appreciate what's really happening. It's kind of played off as a joke. The way that uh, Marnie kind of throws a blanket over the old woman who runs the house, and the, and they're all quite banterful and playful. And it's only in this shift in the final third of the film that you're recontextualizing these scenes and you realise really what's going on. And
1: And that her life was quite lonely. Her her globe-trotting parents would often leave her alone for months on end in that mansion on the lake with with no one to to play with uh, until this girl from the future comes along and they form that relationship across time. And then let's talk about the twist. It's revealed that... Marnie is a spiritual projection of Anna's memories of the stories she was told at her infant bedside by her grandmother, who was Marnie. Yes. I
0: understand. I don't. Uh, (laughs) If I'm honest, I didn't put that all together when Mm -hmm. I was watching the film. I I got lost, Mm -hmm. and I thought if this is going to wrap up with, oh, I had a summer friendship with uh, a young girl from the past and she was ghost and yeah. she helped me figure out who I am. Yeah. I thought that's enough. Yes. That's actually, in a weird way, makes more sense than when this film tries to apply logic to a situation that I think has room to
1: be quite openly spiritual. Mm-hmm. But he just, Yonobashi throws so many extra themes into the pot. Another one we've not mentioned is this is the first Ghibli film to talk about race, to tackle that. We have um, Marnie, who at least one of her parents are are Western. Uh, She has blonde hair and blue eyes, and Anna has inherited some of that. Mm. And that gives rise to the sense that all along, Anna has felt on the outside of that circle where there's an invisible boundary and you're on the outside of it. She doesn't feel comfortable in her own skin, in her society, in her community. Could that be because she's adopted? Could that be because she's gay? Could that be because she's mixed race in a a culture, a country, Japan, which has much more of a, a a much much smaller immigrant population than we're used to in the West? And he just throws that in there. Yeah, I, there, there are so many things that are thrown in, and in a way, I love
0: him for it because the ambition is amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, I really admire it, particularly coming off the back of the previous Ghibli films, which we admire for their focus, their understanding of theme and tightness of story. Or, in like for me anyway, those are my favourite f- of their films, and this is sprawling Mm -hmm. emotionally. Not in a Princess Mononoke way uh, where it's in the plot. This goes for so many things but
1: I don't actually think it lands any of them. It's so fascinating that a Ghibli film if you think about the spectrum of Ghibli films, this is the one that's most closely set in the real world, can be harder to get your head around. <laughs> yes. I mean, we have seen films set in infinite bathhouses
0: with gods and monsters, and they make more sense than this.
1: hmm And it can be something that... I've watched this maybe four or five times now. It's a reason to go back, <clears throat> to think, maybe I missed something, maybe there'll be new resonance here. But it is... I think, endlessly frustrating in, in quite a compelling way that he doesn't pick a lane, he doesn't explore any of these themes satisfyingly. Um, I know that there are, there are reviews I've read, maybe fan reviews. Most of the reviews that came out from professional critics said, oh, another gorgeous Ghibli film um, with flights of fantasy in the real world and all the stuff that you used to. But there are reviews from fans, especially on Letterboxd, which say, is Anna trans?" Or is this queer baiting? Did Did Ghibli knowingly put this in their film it's for an international audience that wants same-sex relationships in these sorts of films? Ghibli have done um, young women finding themselves before, but have Ghibli done young women finding things about themselves, about who they love and who they want to be? And it doesn't do that. Mm. It's this is we we ha- we don't often talk about films that are you know, other animated films from Japan. We've, one we have mentioned before is Your Name, which was a huge smash. And that is what I think the pinnacle of what I call the teen feels anime genre, which is where you have a, a slice of life boy and girl, star-crossed lovers. But the problem is, the, what's keeping them apart is the fact there's a time-slip device there. And also, there's a major natural disaster that's in, that's in and play. And a body swap. And a body swap, exactly. So, But again, that's something that is hugely complicated and, and has all of these different tendrils... Um, but really satisfyingly come together. And it can hinge on a single emotional moment. All of this stuff is happening and then two hands touching or just not touching, just mm. missing out on that physical connection can bring it all together. This film doesn't have that. It's almost like we, be Ashi has been seeing these other films, this new wave of new it generation of storytelling. It's looking
0: for a click
1: moment mm-hmm. that never happens. Yeah. And uh, it, it's it's just fascinating to talk about. Yeah. I, this is one of those ones where you don't start anyone off with a film like this on their road th- through Ghibli. But once they have maybe five or six, or in your case, 12 films under <laughs> your belt, we can show them this. It's so interesting. Yeah.
0: And it, it's one, although there are other films that I've liked a lot more than this, this is the one that I feel most compelled to rewatch as well. It's interesting that you... You're not a huge fan of this, I gather, but you've watched it four or five times since it's come out.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: Um, But there are also so many little bits that I love from it. Like, there is some food here that is pure Ghibli. Mm -hmm. There is uh, the chopping of a watermelon and a tomato, and there's a runny egg (laughs) that is sliced through with some chopsticks that you just want to just leap out to the screen and grab.
1: You're an avowed fan of chilling out in nature, and there are scenes of Marnie and Anna in a boat... Just having a nice little row. Yeah, Yeah.
0: Uh, and doing a Titanic moment. Who, who doesn't love a Titanic? Yeah, for, Jake. for for some people that obviously aren't romantically connected. It's all not talk, it's your grandma.
1: <laughs> Don't yeah, fall ex- in love with that ghost girl you meet on your summer vacation because she could be your grandma.
0: We've all done it. We've all done it, and that's the lesson. So I, we could go on and on with when Marnie was there. Maybe we'll once we've watched all the other films, we'll do this one and try and get a bit more to the centre of it because there's so much to talk about. Uh, I think it is time though to figure out where when Marnie was there. will go on Michael Leader's leaderboard here we are it's that time again Michael's worst time of the week where we've got to put all of his favourite films into one lovely list because that's the only way we can Mm. criticise films now Um, quickly recapping from the bottom to the top uh, the Cat Returns, Arietti, Howl's Moving Castle, Pompoco, Only Yesterday, Ponyo, Spirited Away, Porco Rosso, Kiki's Delivery Service, that was last week's new entry, Princess Mononoke, Grave of the Fireflies, My Neighbor Totoro, and Whisper of the Heart. Michael, where is When Marley Was There going to go? I'm assuming it's a podium finish
1: for sure. Oh, Jake, <laughs> you do like to joke. Um, so if we're thinking about this in tiers, where we have the top tier, which is expanding with every, every, every other episode, it seems, where we have, I think, six or seven films up top, which are, I think, close to being perfect, five-star films. Then we have that middle tier of, I think, high-class Ghibli with a few knocks against them. That's where I'd put Ponyo, Only Yesterday, Pompoko. This might almost be a new class in its own right where... The ambition is there. The spectacle of the animation is just incredible. It is compelling, but frustratingly so. To the point where I've never felt... You never feel with Hayao Miyazaki that he doesn't know what he's doing. And I do have a sneaking suspicion that Hiromasa Yonobayashi and his co-writers on the screenplay didn't realize that what they're doing... Was creating this story that has six or seven clashing themes uh, of of same sex relationships, etc., and it comes across as messy and amateurish in a in a way that the other films don't. So, in some ways, brilliant; in other ways, really frustrating. I'm going to put this at number eleven which is just above the Howl's Moving Castles and Arietes and Cat Returns of the World, which I think are heavily flawed films that I just don't enjoy as much. But below films like Only Yesterday and Pompoko, which I think have unified, coherent statements. You know that Hissat has a point to make. I don't think Hiro Onobashi has a point to make here. But he has improved since Arietis jumped two places. I wouldn't put this in the bad pile at all. We haven't had, a, don't think, a truly bad uh, Ghibli film yet, have we, Jake?
0: No, we haven't, but that may all change as uh, I've been warned about next
1: week's film. Yes, so next week's film, we're going from Hiramatsu Yonobayashi to another one of the new generation of Ghibli filmmakers. We're going to Goro Miyazaki and his debut film, Tales from Earthsea, adapted from the Ursula K. Le Guin epic franchise. Yeah, I know
0: that I should be really excited about
1: all the classics that I
0: haven't seen yet, but for some weird reason, this is perhaps the one that I've
1: been most anticipating. Because it does have the reputation of being the bad or the botched TV film, right? Well, we have to, well, I'll be revisiting, you'll be visiting for the first time, let's see how it pans out
0: well until then uh, we hope you've enjoyed your time in the Ghibliotech uh, if you'd like to keep up with Michael on Twitter you can follow him at Michael J. Leader
1: and you can follow Jake at Jake H. Cunningham
0: Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production our music is made by Anthony Ng our artwork is by Sophie Moe and Lister Russell makes us sound good the show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill, and Steph Watts. That's me.
1: Hi, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through the credits. This week's Nugget is another soundtrack cue. You may remember that Arietti was the first Ghibli film to have a score by a non-Japanese composer. This film has a closing credits theme, by uh, an American singer-songwriter called Priscilla Ahn. It's called Fine on the Outside, but did you know that she actually recorded a whole album of songs inspired by When Marnie Was There? It's called Just Know That I Love You and plays something like an emotional concept album. It's very much in the same emo folk-pop vein as that closing theme. Tracks include Deep Inside My Heart, This Old House, Waltzing Memories, and I Am Not Alone to give you a taste for how emo it goes. If you want to dig deeper, it's available on iTunes. Check it out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel
0: style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen.